think sometimes seeking help is perceived as a sign of weakness. But sometimes there is a thin line between success and failure. So I'd rather seek help and succeed. And even if you then fail, you sought help. So it wasn't for lack of trying. But if we didn't seek help, then we have a part to play because we didn't seek the help we need at the right time. So this is not a place where seeking help is a sign of weakness. So use it, leverage it at the right time, reach out to the right people and ask for help. People open doors because that's how they have succeeded. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Ida Abdalkani, a Chief Catalyzer. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to Sundar Raman, CEO of Fabric and Home Care at P&G. It was a great conversation about the importance of being present for someone when they need, challenging our implicit biases, and finding a better third way. Here's a quick bio. Sundar is the CEO of Fabric and Home Care at P&G, the largest business sector for the company, representing one-third of the company's sales and net earnings. He had an atypical path, starting in sales with his internship with P&G in India, then starting in marketing analytics full-time before moving to the U.S. and working on hair care in the brand management path. In 2008, he joined North America Fabric Care to lead innovation and marketing, and in 2019 was appointed president of Fabric Care North America and P&G Professional, expanding his responsibilities to global home care in 2020. Along the way, Sundar has demonstrated a track record of results and, importantly, care. He is aware of his impact on the organization and those around them and strives to be available when someone needs him, especially a mentee seeking help. He challenges his own implicit biases and works with his team to foster an inclusive environment and strives to find a better third solution when stuck between two bad options. He is a visionary leader with broad expertise and a passion for innovation, and our conversation today reflects his passion for diversity, mentorship, and finding a path that works for the individual. What I love about our conversation is Sundar's openness about his non-standard path to the general management role and now leading the largest sector at P&G. And I think many of us can relate to his thoughts on the fine balance between failure and success and the need to ask for help and resources. So let's dive in. We hope you will enjoy our conversation with Sundar Raman. Today, we're talking to Sundar Raman, CEO of Fabric and Home Care at P&G. Sundar, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Great to be here, Ida. Well, many already know your professional story, but first, who were you before the beginning of your career journey? I have to start my journey all the way back where I was born in South India, grew up in a city called Madras, now called Chennai. I was uh, a, a child of a joint family, which is a concept that probably is uh, still true in many parts of uh the place where I grew up, but probably declining. Grew up in a household that typically hosted 16 people, eight adults and eight kids. My grandparents and my father's siblings lived under the same roof, and many times their kids, my cousins, 
lived along with us. Uh, it is a childhood marked equally with a lot of joy growing up with a lot of kids around me and a lot of challenges just simply because of the environment in which we were in. A uh, combination of those, I think, have helped me uh, become who I am today. So um, I'm a child of uh, Indian origin, grew up with a highly uh, uh, education-focused culture and uh, a one where economic uh, uncertainty was a part of everyday life, but the joys of growing up together with your cousins and lots of people under the same roof, uh, I think it's helped me even today in a matrix large company like PNG. Well, I love, we'll have to talk about Chennai offline. I actually, uh, we have some synergies there that we yeah. that we can uh, talk about. Nice. But you mentioned, did you say eight kids grew up in the household? Yeah, I have only one biological sister, but my cousins, so my uncles and aunts' kids grew up with, we all grew up together under the same roof. Wow. That's a small basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we played every possible sport together. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So then, so I have to ask then, growing up in that environment, what led you to PNG or why PNG? Honestly, my path led me to the Indian Institute of Technology in Chennai to study engineering, after which I went to the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta for my postgraduate degree in business. And PNG was the first company to give me an offer for my summer internship in the summer of 97. So I ended up through the placement process coming to PNG in sales as an intern and getting a pre-placement offer to come back into a full-time role within the company. And that's how I ended up here. Well, PNG does such a great job with that. That's also how I ended up there, right? Was through the internship program, mini uh, interview, right? For three months or however long the internship <laughs> might be. So then as you started out, you said the internship was in sales. What made you interested or how did you get on the general management path? Yeah, no, I interned in sales and I had a full-time offer to come back as a market research analyst. So I came back in market research, which by itself was a bit different and strange for the time. I asked for a role in the commercial organization and a lot of my college seniors were in market research and I took a liking to being in the analyst role. So I joined and moved as an analyst to the U.S., in a business intelligence services, reporting into a finance associate director, band four back then, and ended up working in the finance organization, Global MDO Finance, uh, also as an analyst, before moving to a brand assignment in with the acquisition of the Clairol business in Cincinnati. As it happened when we acquired the Clairol business, not many people who worked on the hair care side of the business moved from Stamford, Connecticut to Cincinnati. And I had worked with several people on the PNG side as uh, part of my prior assignments. And that opportunity uh, showed up and I took it. So I ended up moving from a sales internship to an analyst in market research to an analyst in the global MDO finance organization to a marketer in hair care. And um, grew up essentially from there on in the marketing organization in North America, hair care, working on head and shoulders before moving to fabric care in innovation uh, in 2008, around the time uh, you had just moved from fabric back to uh, beauty, uh, became a general manager in the fabric care division. So not the usual career path, but definitely uh, multiple functions that led me to the general management career path, primarily through the marketing route uh, before I became a GM. Yeah, we were talking about this before uh, we started recording here about 
how we kind of switched, right? I went to beauty care as you came to fabric care. So we kind of crossed paths and knew about each other, but didn't actually uh, get to work together, unfortunately. But, you know, as you mentioned, you took a non-typical path, let's call it, at P&G. Um, and one of the things I think is actually very interesting, too, is that a lot of people start in fabric care and then branch out to other divisions, whereas you started in beauty care and then came to fabric care, which at least I can speak from my own experience. You know, the marketing was so different between those two business divisions, right? Where in fabric care, we were so focused on the science of it and how it works and really proving out why we're so much better than competitors. And in beauty care, much more emotional marketing. How was that change for you as you went from um, not only a different business segment, but also moving up right within the corporation and kind of going on from marketing to that general management path? What were some of those challenges that you experienced? Just start with the, the marketing side of things. I think as always, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And you know, as uh, my fortune would have it, I, I worked most of my time in beauty care and hair care on Head and Shoulders, which is a brand that I love today. And it really is a testament to how great of a brand that people coming before us had built, which is on the shoulders of science and the ability to handle a, a significant problem in dandruff. And the brand had been built on this specific problem solution focus on getting rid of dandruff and making people feel confident and finding the right balance between performance and emotion as always a part of the head and shoulders brand and advertising. So coming into fabric care and growing up in fabric care, you learn pretty much the exact same thing. There is not really too much of a choice in great brand building between doing what is scientifically and objectively life-improving about the products we create and innovate on but also communicating it in a way that effectively tells people how their life is going to get improved, which is the emotional, so if you will, job to be done, and linking those two in every piece of communication in a persuasive and memorable way. That's the high bar of brand building and advertising. And that doesn't, at least in my experience, fundamentally shift between brand to brand, at least going from head and shoulders to fabric care, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really fair. The second part of your question about learning, going, becoming a general manager from the marketing side, the real challenge is to incorporate all the other aspects of value creation, organization building, understanding the different aspects and inputs that goes into our business model as a company that is beyond brand building as the integration job of a general manager. And you have to learn a lot about the operating models and systems that underpin the company. Uh, everything from what goes into our filling our trucks and running our production lines and how do we do third-party management in our plants on logistics through our innovation process and how the R&D organization is structured and the ability to do upstream and downstream work. And all of that coming together to create a, a business model that involves selling to customers and fulfilling the orders. So it's an end-to-end -end job in the general management world. And marketing gives you a vantage point that is broad, but it's still focused on the brand building side. And adding these other pieces, I think, really gets you ready to be a general management, general manager in the company. And frankly, when we move to the true end-to-end -end model, 
which I had a chance to be a part of the pilot in the company, it truly incorporated every aspect of the value stream beginning to the end. And that is a different appreciation for the general management, P&L, profit and loss responsibility, of which brand building is a critical and an important part, a necessary part, but you have to add the other pieces for it to be sufficient. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great way to um, to think about it, as you said, with the operational piece as well, right? And really thinking about it as end-to-end. As you created this transition, though, it sounds easy now, right? With with all the experience that you have behind you. But I imagine there were probably some bumps along the way or maybe some challenges. Was there any one big challenge or maybe even a fork in the road that you encountered as you navigated this transition into general management? Yeah, there were several. And all of them had one possible way to frame the root cause, which is just you know, lack of knowledge, ignorance of a particular aspect of our value creation model, right? Back in 2017 and 18, we were going through a a meaningful challenge in the operational side of things. As we were starting to grow the business, our supply chain and operating strategy started to come apart at the seams for multiple reasons. But being the general manager of the business, I really couldn't put my finger on what is the specific problem to solve because I just didn't understand it well enough. So I literally spent a few weeks, a couple of months actually, working from the desks of several of our product supply and supply chain colleagues to truly understand the systems with which we operated. How does an order get entered? How do we do concurrent planning? Uh, How do we make sure that our production systems are in sync with uh, how our demand planning organization worked? What is um, our current model for how do we fill our warehouses and our trucks and whether we cube out or weigh out our trucks and what is the model for making sure that we're most efficient? Each of these pieces required me to dig to a level of depth and understanding that I simply hadn't had the opportunity to uh, growing up in the company, but that gave me a vantage point for solving some of those problems in partnership with the market operations team and the leadership on the ground, which essentially retooled ourselves for a future that was a lot more uncertain and volatile, but we were able to navigate it. I personally was able to navigate it a bit better, uh, having spent the time to understand some of the uh, nuts and bolts of how we operated. So I don't know if that kind of gives you a sense for that story, but it was truly um, a gap in my understanding that I needed to navigate in this specific fork in the road that led to solving a problem not just looking backwards, but also getting us ready for what might come in the future. Absolutely. And I know that P&G also gives you quite a bit of training as well, right? As you go into the general management path, at least that's, it used to be that way. I'm not sure uh, what the company's doing now, but you know, we all went through brand manager college, right? At every band level, there was a significant amount of training, resources, tools available to us. Was that something that you also were able to take advantage of as you kind of navigated the transition? Yeah, 100%. And think about it today, we run GM College and I train at several of them. I think the critical path to realize is that is more the enterprise view on aspects of strategy, on aspects of how our enterprise approach on organization, on digital and sustainability and different pieces come together. But the more in-depth understanding of the category and the operations and how we go end-to-end is really upon 
the team on the ground in the category to go and understand. So while the GM college very much is a critical part of getting our GMs ready to be successful, it is by itself not sufficient in order to get to the depth required to understand the business that we're running. Absolutely. I, I always said at PNG that it's like being thrown into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> so, you know, there's some life fest available if you need it, but um, it's really about learning through the through the lived experience, right? And that to me, I think is the best training possible. You never forget when you live through it um, and you encounter those challenges and really have to work through it and then have, again, those resources available if you need them. But it's good to know that that is for you also, it's, it sounds like at least one of the more important parts of learning the role. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just to stretch the analogy maybe a bit further, I do think we hire good swimmers. <laughs> so, Hope so, right? Yeah, or there'd be a lot of drowning. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then I think, you know, if we hire them to begin with, then entrusting them with the responsibility to swim is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You might have to adjust to the conditions and of the pool or the ocean or wherever it is that you're swimming, but it, it may make a little bit more of a learning curve, but I think our people generally tend to be very capable of doing that learning. Absolutely. I know they, they always gave us the stat. I used to recruit as well when I was at PNG back at Ohio State. And we used to say that it's harder to get into PNG than it is to get into Harvard. Those were the stats <laughs> at the time around, right? The number of applications versus how many people get in. Um, it's a very rigorous process just to get in, right? The different interviews that you go through and the testing that you go through in the application process. So you're, I, I think you're absolutely right that PNG brings in good swimmers <laughs> to begin with. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know the data to date, but I, I would say it's it still remains a pretty rigorous process and a highly selective process. Absolutely. Well, what about, um, we haven't talked about mentors. I imagine you've probably had some mentors along the way. If so, is there one that stands out for you, maybe as an individual or any particular advice that's really helped you in your own career? Mentors have been a critical part of my journey and success. There's no question about it. And honestly, I, I don't think I'd be where I am without several of my mentors. I think the the main point about the mentors I've had, and there have been several, and depending upon where I have been in the organization, they have varied from mentor peers, people I worked with, all the way through to senior management mentors. But what sets them apart in my mind are the ones that have been truly effective for me is people who were there when I needed them the most and specific to uh, help required, not conceptually, but you know, in a behavioral sense, specifically on how to tackle a current situation in the business challenge or, or, or even navigating work and life. To me, those mentors have made the biggest difference and I still advocate for mentorship pretty heavily within the company. I think for a company of our size and complexity and kind of challenges, it's so helpful to you know, have a culture where so many people have spent such long, many years in the company to help others navigate those same challenges, even if they're not exactly the same ones, but enough knowledge transfer to be of help. The most important thing is to be present when you need. So it's less about you know, once a quarter, I touch base for 30 minutes to say, hi, how things are going but really about being available when I needed them and being available where I needed them with 
specific enough advice to help navigate challenges. I think those mentors are not necessarily always top management, not always the uh, leadership of the company, though they are amazing mentors, is but across levels and functions, people who have been able to step in and help when needed. So a huge part of my career and always will be a part of my life as well because they extend to help beyond just the career guidance per se, but something that's a critical asset, I think, in a company like ours. And I think it's also really important to have mentorship up and down, right? And sometimes we talk yep, about yes, exactly. management up and down, but also I think mentorship up and down. What are some of the key things you try to impart in the mentorship relationships where you're the mentor, right? So what do you try to impart to your mentees? Starting point is to seek help and succeed. I think sometimes in a very competitive corporate culture, seeking help is perceived as a sign of weakness. And if you were to think about the quadrants of seeking help on one side to not seeking help on the other side and succeeding and failing as the other axis, I think the general perception is not seeking help and succeeding is considered top of the class. But sometimes there's a thin line between success and failure. So if you don't seek help and you go for success and you end up failing, it's not just a notch below, but it's a couple of notches below the people who seek help and succeed. So I'd rather seek help and succeed. And even if you then fail, you sought help. So it wasn't for lack of trying that failure happens and we can learn from that and move on. But if we didn't seek help and that doesn't result in success, then we have a part to play in taking responsibility for that because we didn't seek the help we need at the right time. So my first advice to mentees is this is not a place where seeking help is a sign of weakness. So the fact that you've signed up to be a mentee is a fantastic sign. Use it. Leverage it. At the right time, reach out to the right people and ask for help. And I've spent most of my uh, life here at PNG at this point, majority of my years, and I'm still yet to have a door shut when I've asked for help. And that remains the case for a vast majority of PNGers, if not virtually for everybody, which is people open doors because that's how they have succeeded. So in a culture where it's not just okay to help, but it's expected to help, not taking advantage of it is, is, uh, is a real opportunity missed. So, and that opportunity can come from anywhere, right? Because you might need something on the business. You might need something dealing with a tough relationship at work. You might need help navigating even something as basic as benefits. And sometimes you have the ability to simply ask for something regarding life outside of work. But all of those are fair game with a mentor. So always I start with use the relationship you have and ask for help when you need it. I think that's so important, especially in an organization such as P&G. You mentioned the competitiveness. Um, and I can say, at least in my, my experience at P&G, especially in the brand marketing track, it's incredibly competitive. To your point, maybe sometimes we don't ask for help because we don't want that to be perceived as a sign of weakness. Yep. So I love that that's something that you really communicate to your mentees. You know, one thing that I think is really important to touch on as well as we're talking about some of the challenges and, and some things that maybe your mentees might encounter as well, is the idea around how do we make the workplace more inclusive? Um, how do we make sure that it's not just about equity, but also a feeling of belonging? 
And I know you sit on the board for the Freedom Center in Cincinnati, and that's in part, you know, due to your commitment to DEIB. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what drives you, one, to be involved with that type of work? And two, you know, how do you instill that in the culture at PNG, right? And your role as CEO and as a leader? That's a great question, Ida. Just one correction. I yeah. I was on the board of the Freedom Center up until March. So I ah, stepped okay. down when I, when I moved to Geneva and after a period of time. But nevertheless, I was there for many years. It was a critical part of both my awareness of what the work that the Freedom Center does, but also a critical gap in what we needed to address at PNG when I started and you know continues to make progress against. Maybe two two thoughts. One, linking to the mentorship part. So I am in a reverse mentoring relationship with Scott Van Nees at PNG. I hope he wouldn't mind uh, me sharing his name, but he belongs to a community of people within PNG who are deaf or hard of hearing. And he is coaching me on how to make PNG more inclusive and become more enabling of disability confidence within the PNG universe. And every day there's an opportunity to learn about how to make the workplace inclusive in a very real physical sense, but also in the way we operate around our colleagues day in and day out. There is a critical aspect of that, which is if I expand it beyond that specific relationship, is the vantage point from which we approach inclusion within the company is always limited by our understanding of which cohorts we work with and which cohorts we serve. So continuing to work with and learn from different aspects of our own colleagues and and team members, because they all come from different backgrounds and different capabilities and different kind of educational and skill backgrounds, all of that adds to our ability to become more inclusive. So that reverse mentoring relationship is a fantastic tool in our toolkit of how to become more inclusive. The second part of it is the experience at the Freedom Center, which is also a, a broader part of a learning experience. And it starts with the understanding that regardless of intent, all of us and several of us, self-included, carry an implicit bias. And that is shaped by the upbringing that we have had or the exposure that we have had to books and media and movies and so on and so forth. Starting with a self-awareness of those biases, how do we actually learn the empathy required to become inclusive is critical. And the reason why it's critical is very basic. We work for a company that's a mass marketing company. And for us to succeed in this company, we make products that are innovative and superior that appeal to all consumers. And several of our ideas, products, and concepts heavily depend upon our ability to relate to that consumer base in all their glory and diversity. And so when we have a team on this side of the table that is as diverse as the consumers we serve, we become stronger in our ability to develop products and ideas and concepts and solutions. And as it turns out, the best talent in the world is diverse and doesn't look alike, think alike, and talk alike. So you need a culture of inclusion to attract and retain the best talent in the world. So this combination of inclusion that comes from empathy and understanding strengthens our team at PNG, attracts and retains the best talent so we can serve the diverse consumer base around the world. And that powerful combination is self-reinforcing. The more 
inclusive we are, the more best talent is attracted, the better the ideas that we come up with to serve the companies and consumers in the world. And that makes our results stronger. And that positive loop continues. So the experience at Freedom Center allowed for me to establish a connection between implicit bias as a critical learning objective for both the enterprise, but also for the Freedom Center, who played that role brilliantly for us, training several of our executives through uh, bias and how to deal with it and tools that facilitated us to learn ourselves to be able to bring into the walls of P&G. Even today, we're on our journey and we're not you know, where we need to be, but we've made progress in terms of wanting to share that intent and to be able to get leaders assembled together who are able to build that empathy and share their personal stories with the broad organization that has then helped us build a better business outcome as a result. I love that you mentioned how implicit bias can actually be used in our favor, because to be honest, I think a lot of us are afraid of talking about our implicit bias because of the challenges that that can bring with ourselves and those around us when we when we admit what some of those biases might be. And so the experience that you shared and actually using that almost as a superpower to be able to create a critical learning objective around that, to bring in the best diversity, right? To not only have the best talent, but also serve our consumers, I think is just a really interesting take on how we might be able to approach, uh, approach implicit bias. So I, I appreciate you sharing that story. Sure. I think it. I've grown significantly as a result of that growth experience, and I've taken several of my teams through it. And I believe if and when you talk to them, they will uh, resonate with the fact that they became better marketers, innovators, uh, managers as a result of being able to build that self-awareness about themselves and the empathy required to manage several of the ideas and innovations and solutions that we came up with. I, I love that. Well, Sundar, we're almost out of time here. So I want to go through a few quick rapid fire questions for some things people might not know about you. What is one place you want to travel to? Uh, space. Space. Okay. Blue, blue origin. Have you, have you picked <laughs> which one? It's, it's way too expensive right now, but I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. scale will bring the cost down. That's true. That's true. I actually have a friend going up. You do? Yeah. And I think it's this upcoming fall, a year from now. That's awesome. To be able yeah. to see the earth from space is a dream. Yeah, same. I'm just, I'm waiting, as you said, for the economies of scale for that, <laughs> for that ticket price to come down. What about your go-to vice? Music. Ooh, okay. Is there a certain type, a genre or? All kinds. I, okay. you know, something that some people know, but many people don't know is I was a musician before I uh, went to uh, engineering school. I used to play the violin. Oh, wow. And Indian classical music for quite a few years. So my love for music has remained. My my three boys all play music and um, we listen and kind of enjoy all different genres from Indian classical to Bollywood to uh, Western classical and not really have too discriminating uh, within those genres, but we enjoy music a lot. Fantastic. And if you could have coffee with one person here or not, who would that be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Um, possibly with, may have to uh, go with one of the uh, people who linked science and mysticism, right? Somebody like mm. somebody like Niels Bohr. Yeah, I love that. 
And I didn't get a chance to ask this before, but I think I'd be remiss if I did not before we uh, close here. Or what do you think uh, your kids would say is the number one thing they've learned from you? Do they have like a favorite dadism or dad oh, quote? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. They would totally would. It would be called finding the better third way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they are tired of hearing me say it uh, almost as much as the people within PNG are. But <laughs> it, it's something that I uh, learned from Roger Martin, David Taylor, and people within PNG who taught me about integrative thinking. But it's my one of my problem-solving go-tos. And very often we are asked to pick between two bad choices. And kids in particular give you bad choices to pick from. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I've trained my boys that I will not accept one of the options they give me and ask them to find a better third way. And I think they absolutely hate it, but that would be a dadism <laughs> that comes to their mind. <laughs> Hopefully they'll appreciate it later in life. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the hope. As most things with our parents, right? <laughs> that, that's the hope. Okay, and final question. What is one piece of advice or a challenge you have for the next generation? For the next generation, I think is to define impact that they can have in the broadest sense possible. Very often I meet with people joining the company or interns who tend to describe their work as what's laid out for them in a very narrow sense. And we hire and look at people as incredibly capable with high potential when they come in to this company with incredible backgrounds, great achievements, as we talked about, a rigorous interview process that they prove themselves over multiple times by the time they even come in and to under leverage that potential by defining their impact as too, too small. So a perfect example is a lot of people, uh, young people are interested in environmental sustainability today, almost to the point of sometimes it's seen as a trade-off versus brand building or product superiority or great innovation. And our challenge is not going to get any easier if we accept the trade-off. So back to the better third way, I think if our next generation took on the challenges of the future, not with the mindset of a trade-off and the narrowly defined objective, but with the broadest sense of impact that they can have by taking on the end and not accepting a trade-off, that we could have great innovations that improve consumers' lives, do the stuff that they're supposed to do well, and is more sustainable and is better for the environment, I think we'll find solutions that get adopted way faster and have a much bigger impact on the world way sooner than we think we can have. So I don't know if that makes sense, but define impact in the broadest sense and not accept trade-offs as a given. I think that's a great piece of advice for all of us, whether next generation or not. (laughs) Uh, So thank you again, Sundar, so much for being a part of our podcast today and sharing part of your journey. It's been such a pleasure to have you on our Learnings with Leaders podcast. Thanks, Aida. It's a pleasure to be with you. Forward to meeting you face-to-face sometime soon. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a 
global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Ida Abdalkani. And I'm still Raman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.